Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, president of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. We want to thank you for listening to this chapel message. Our mission at Southeastern is to seek to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ by equipping students to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. We hope that you enjoy this chapel message and that you will visit our website. It's www.sebts.edu. There you can learn more about our school and what the Lord is doing here. We hope you enjoy the message. Thank you for being a part of what we're doing here. Good morning. If you are physically able, would you stand with me for the reading of God's Word this morning? I'll be coming out of Habakkuk chapter 3, verses 16 through 19. Since I know some of y'all don't know where that is, you're going to meander through the Old Testament. Let me just save you some time, and let's just go ahead, and I'll read the text, and we'll pray, and you may be seated. Habakkuk chapter 3, 16 through 19 declares this, I hear, and my body trembles. My lips quiver with the sound. Rottenness enters my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there'll be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places to the choir master with stringed instruments. Let's pray. Father, it's humbling any time to open up your word and in a finite attempt, try to explain it to people. So I declare my dependency on you, Holy Spirit, that you would use me as nothing more than a microphone to amplify your word to the hearer today. And I pray that you would supernaturally stir our hearts to be mobilized, to not just be hearers, but doers. For it's in the matchless and mighty conquering name of Christ Jesus, I pray. Amen. You may be seated. So I've titled this sermon, I am still going even when it's not all good. I'm still going even when it's not all good. Now you can take that one of two ways. You can take it as this is a launching during your time of preparation that even though things are not lining up in the way that you, if you were sovereign, you would have orchestrated your life to look like. You would have orchestrated your GPA to maybe have a couple more digits up, if you will, than what it is, but we ain't going to go there. Um, you could even be saying that this is hard for me right now because I'm in the midst of my call, I'm in the midst of the mission field, and I'm tired, and I'm frustrated, and I'm broken, and I'm not satisfied with where I am right now. To either or, the challenge and the call to make disciples, to go as you're going, it doesn't retreat when good times or bad times are here. So the reality of that is we have to recalibrate our hearts to the text today and ask the Holy Spirit to give us an infusion of strength so that we would continue to stay on mission, that we would be committed to still go even when things are not all good. You know, the branding and the hashtag that I love of our school is I am going. But it's not just a hashtag. The marketing team just didn't come up with something that was catchy, that would trend prayerfully through the mobilization of the students of Southeastern, but rather it's the rhythm of our life as believers. The calling is not something we take off like clothes and we put them away in the closet, and then when it's convenient, and then when we're called upon to express what God has called us to do, then all of a sudden now we get recalled to what Christ has already commanded every believer to do. So as I look at that, I think the main point from this passage the takeaway truth that I've delved from this is this. Believers can thrive wherever we go because our God is triumphant in the midst of our troubles. 
He is worthy to receive our worries and our worship, and he strengthens those who surrender. And I think this text identifies all three of those. So in verses 16 and 17, I think the element of truth that I find from that is our God is triumphant in the midst of our troubles. Now we'll keep the integrity of the passage. It's challenging to just dip into a minor prophet at the end of the book without giving proper consideration. I don't think you'd have integrity if you didn't consider the entire context of this letter. So what you see is this, Babylon's power is growing. The king of Judah is going to Egypt, going to Assyria, seeking partnerships, finding hope and security from these partnerships with other nations that are pagan as well and not turning to God. This is not cool with Habakkuk. Habakkuk is discontent, not only with the leadership going astray, but also with the injustice and the crime that is thriving. Disobedience to the covenantal law of God that is a nation, Judah, and now conquered Israel, had affirmed way back in Deuteronomy. And it's the reality that Habakkuk, he's not cool with it. He's like, Lord, I'm frustrated. You got to do something with your people. And God is like, oh, I got you. Don't worry about it. I'm going to take care of this. I'm rising up a nation right now that I will use as an agent of judgment upon my people who have forsaken covenantal obedience. And then Habakkuk kind of pedals back and then pushes back like, well, hold on, time out, God. Like, how are you going to use a nation more wicked than us? I mean, we're your covenant people. We're your bride. We're the, we're the jewel of your eye. Like, why are you going to use them to judge us? I mean, maybe you could just kind of like swoop us off the map for a little bit, or maybe you can, you know, drop a plague. I don't know what Habakkuk was thinking, but what he was thinking was in his limited, finite understanding is that you surely will not use a nation more wicked than us to bring judgment upon us. And then God responds once again by giving Habakkuk a rebuke. Basically saying, I'm going to do what I'm going to do. The focus has to be on your heart and your obedience to the covenant. But in addition to that, Habakkuk gets a theophany. And out of that theophany leads us to the reality of our text today. From hearing the judgment is coming upon Judah, from hearing the realities of what God is going to do, and he's even going to bring judgment on the agent of judgment, Babylon, here's what he says. I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver with the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones and my legs tremble beneath me. This is graphic language in the Hebrew. So graphic that interpreters didn't want to make it so rough and coarse that it would be a turnoff for people to read these deep, grievous expressions. See, I think Habakkuk's reference to hearing is not to the theophany that he just saw, but rather it's going back to verse 2 in chapter 3 when he is crying out for national revival after hearing that judgment is coming upon Judah. And he knows that punishment is inevitable. He knows there's no turning away from this, that God is building a power that will bring judgment on his people. And it's in response to that knowing that his body trembles. Literally, his bowels are churning inside of him. His lips are quivering to the point that they are shaking uncontrollably. Rottenness has entered his bones. Literally, when you think of wood that is rotten, it can't be stable, it can't support. His bones are falling, if you will. They're not strong enough in this moment to uphold his physical frame. His legs tremble beneath him. They're ready to give out. It's almost like those scenes that you see on the news clips or a YouTube video 
when a convicted criminal was there in front of the judge at the sentencing. They've already been convicted, they've already been found guilty, but this is the sentencing and when the judge throws the book at the prisoner and they respond by shaking to the point that they're trembling and crying and they faint. Those are normally the clips that go viral because people find humor in it. And they find humor because they're not the one recipient of the sentence. So it's easy to even sit on the sideline of a text like this and think, man, Judah was jacked up. Man, Israel was already conquered. Man, why, why didn't they get it? Well, the same reason we still wrestle with idols in our hearts. It's easy to remove yourself from this reality when we live in the age of grace. When we walk with the comprehension that our Savior became a sponge on the cross that we just sung about, and Him being eternally God absorbed the eternal debt that finite creatures like you and I could never pay in totality, there's this aroma of arrogance in my unredeemed humanity that rises up periodically. It's the same aroma of arrogance that Paul proactively rebuked in Romans 6.1 when he said, shall we continue to sin so that grace abounds? By no means, God forbid. And I'm talking as a believer in the age of grace, post-Calvary. And it's easy for me to look at a text like this and not sympathize with the realities of what our brother Habakkuk is going through. This is his initial reaction. Oncoming judgment is coming because of Judah's wickedness. But what, what amazes me is what he goes on to say yet. So he's showing a contrast. Although my physical frame is weak, I am sick from the core of my soul, and it's ex you can see it tangibly in the way that I'm quivering, yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. Initially, he's finding his hope in Christ, um, excuse me, in God at this point through progressive revelation, but the reality of what we have to understand is that he's also taking joy in the fact that God's gonna judge the ones that he uses as an agent of judgment. He's finding initial security and hope in the fact that, God, I know you're going to judge Babylon, so the fact you're going to judge Babylon is going to give me hope so that I can endure. But I praise God that his hope is not found in the judgment of Babylon as we continue in the text. And I want to pause for station identification right now because with all the cultural issues that we have going on in our nation, in our world, so often we get filled with so much angst with people from the opposite side of the spectrum of conversation, whether it's political, theological, sociological, economic, it doesn't matter. It's that fact that sometimes in our sinful flesh, and maybe I'm the only one, but sometimes in our sinful flesh we're like, you know what, you, re you reject the gospel, you reject the cry to repent and come to Christ. You know what? I take comfort in the fact that one day in the lake of fire, then you're going to recognize. And if that's where our heart goes, may God have mercy on us. Because if that's where our heart goes, maybe we don't need to be going anywhere but to the closet for prayer and asking God to remove that arrogance out of our heart so that we won't always use ad homonyms against the liberals, so that we won't always use ad homonyms against those that we don't politically align ourselves with that perhaps maybe we would ask the Spirit of God to control our tongue, to control our motivation, and even direct our time of intercessory prayer for those that we know don't ride with the gospel, that perhaps that if God would bestow grace upon us to lead us out of our darkness, to perform the supernatural miracle of regeneration, perhaps He's sovereign enough to do that in the life of our strongest opposers. It's been done. It's been done. And we read about it in sacred writ, the greatest terrorist in the infancy of the church was the Apostle Paul. 
And if God could save a terrorist like Saul, and we see him leveraged to write two-thirds of the New Testament, who dare we think that those who are the strongest advocates against the cross today are unredeemable when we still deal with unredeemed flesh ourselves? So he starts with, I got my comfort knowing that you're going to judge them dudes too. I'm going to quietly wait, chill in a cut, wait for you to do you, God. But you know what? I think when we couple that with the heart of the psalmist in Psalm 46.10, I think this is a turning point for us. God works with us where we are. No matter our initial response and reaction, I praise God that he doesn't smash me even in my state of spiritual immaturity. Psalm 46.10 says, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. God is commanding his people to place their confidence in him, not their circumstances, not their quote unquote strengths, not their gifts, not their abilities, not their financial security, not their network of relationships. He's saying, put your trust in me, not those things that are temporal. At the same time, I think the psalmist is cluing us back in, back to verse 7, where it says, The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Yahweh Sabaoth, the commander of the vast heavenly armies, is riding for us. He is our fortress. He's our panic room, our bomb shelter, if you will. He is the one that we should run to when we are facing oppositions because we will not quiver back from the stance of the gospel that we are compelled to share as we go and as we live. So even as the, the nations are wicked and they rage against God and his people, his people must run to our mighty fortress who is our God. Understanding then the beauty of the gospel and the finished work of Christ, we can gain confidence that God has no wrath for me. I am in Christ. Christ absorbed the cup of wrath down to the last drop. The resurrection secured the fact that I would be forensically declared not guilty perpetually throughout all of eternity. That's why I can't boast. But in these moments of my weakness, when I want to cower back, when, when, when it's opposition, even from those within the body of Christ that I'm facing for stances on the Word of God, for stances on different methodologies to employ gospel-centered missions, activities in our nation and world, that even though people don't grasp it and understand, and they attack directly or indirectly, and even though I have been the one who did not understand and I attack directly or indirectly, then I can look at the righteousness of Christ that covers me and it breaks me to recalibrate my heart to humility to know that I don't deserve this right standing with you, Father. But it's only because of the finished work of my Savior that clothes me that you embrace me as your child. And as you go, wherever God sends you, I beg of you, beloved, don't be so naive to think that in your going, you won't face persecution. And don't be so naive that when it's our carnality and disobedience to the commands of Christ that in our discipleship rhythm of life, we are to be obeying, not disobeying, that those consequences and the discipline of our Savior, don't think that that's persecution. Peter already handled that. It's this reality is that we have to understand in our going, we are not exempt from suffering. 
Now there's times that we bring suffering upon ourselves and consequences because of our disobedience. And our sinfulness brings consequences and that brings the loving discipline of our loving Father, according to Hebrews 12, 7 through 11, to become a reality in our life. But at the same time, our obedience is an offense to the world. This is why in 2 Timothy, Paul said, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. You can't go so far in our day. You can't even post a Facebook post expressing your heart's alignment with a cultural quagmire ready to blow and not receive some form of persecution for standing on the Word of God. In the day of persecution and suffering, this is what we must understand. Don't put your faith in your strengths, gifts, and education. Put them in Yahweh Sabaoth. It's what Martin Luther said. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear. For God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. That's a shout out to my homie ambassador, William Branch. I know that's one of his favorite hymns, so I see you, my G. Understanding that a mighty fortress is our God, we have to be proactive in preparing for such days when trouble comes. And I think this is exactly Habakkuk's counsel to us when he says, though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Literally what this brother is talking about is if Chaos and calamity absorb us in totality. We're talking literally the worst things that can happen. A complete economic collapse, an absolute absence of food and clothing. When the necessities of life have no flow of renewal and they have no presence, in that moment, we must run to our God who is a mighty fortress. But to be honest with you, it's easy to say that I'll be faithful to you, Lord, in the midst of the future famine while I'm digging in my feast right now. It's easy to say, I will not put my trust in chariots or horses or a savings account or a 401k when you don't have that stuff. It's easy to say that I will endure to the end in a season of rest. And it's easy to say, I will, I will go in and I will represent you well in the time of major catastrophe when it's the minor challenges that we can't even conquer. We always prepare for the major while we neglect the minor, and those minors culminate to then break us to the point of moral failure. Song of Solomon 2.15, the little foxes spoil the vineyards. It's the little things that collectively come together and just disseminate the structure. If you're single, will you stay faithful to God in that late hour when various sexual temptations are accessible on your phone and you're the only one in your room? Young married folks, will you stay faithful when your career and your ministry tempt you to cheat on your spouse and your family? A professor, an academic, will you stay faithful when your publisher rejects your manuscript and your teaching load seems more than you can bear for this semester? I failed in all of those areas. But what I've learned is that through my failures, I learned that I have to have greater dependency on Christ, whose performance brought about a right standing before God. And so I've learned that in the midst of my trouble, I know that he has triumph. So that allows me to now give God my worries and my worship. In verse 18, in light of all the catastrophes that he named, he says this, 
yet I will rejoice in the Lord. See, our God is worthy to receive not just our worship, but also our worries. Habakkuk uses the word rejoice in the active. So it is a decision that consciously he has to make. He has to perform the action to rejoice in the Lord, to express jubilation, extreme joy. It contrasts the present calamity and the forthcoming calamity that he knows is not going to detour. He knows it's oncoming. He knows the Babylonian Empire is gaining strength. He knows that Judah is going to be overthrown. He doesn't know the depth of the exile and all that's going to take place. He doesn't understand the beauty of the incarnation of God the Son. He doesn't know about our risen Lord. He doesn't know about the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And yet, even when I have all access to that wonderful information, I still seem to forget how to rejoice in the Lord in those moments of trial. Psalm 511, but let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them that those who love your name may exalt you. There is something about singing in the moments of persecution, singing in the moments of failure, singing in the moments of pain, singing in the moments of abandonment that somehow recalibrates our heart to take our eyes off of the things of the world and put them back on Christ. Remember the 21 Coptic Christians who were beheaded on the beach in Egypt by ISIS. The majority of them were in their early 20s. After being tortured and refusing to deny Christ, they were there on the beach and they were beheaded. And people have reported that while they were being beheaded, they were singing hymns to Jesus. That broke me, man. I'm mad when my wife doesn't leave me enough gasoline in the car and I see the gas light on and I got to drive to church for work. And now I got a detour. And I left my house so I would get to work just on time pending there's no traffic. And now I'm going to be late and I'm sending text messages and I'm tempted to throw my wife under the bus. Man, see that woman you gave me cuz she didn't put no gas in the car. <laughs> but yet, but yet they sang to Jesus, man. <laughs> I can't even sing to Jesus when my car is low on fuel. They're facing death. Terror is staring them in the eyes, but what gives them the hope to sing is to know that my risen Lord has went before me. He paved, he is the highway to heaven. Like I am going to be with my Savior in glory, death is a promotion to me. So that's, that's the major catastrophe. Can I stand for Christ when I'm going to die? Yes, but then why don't I stand for him in the mundane issues of life? That's my challenge for us. When it's not all good, we can't stop going forward in our walk with Christ. This is how it's done. On the beach of martyrdom, our GPA does not matter. How many Twitter followers we have doesn't matter. How many books we wrote does not matter. What matters is will I deny my Savior, yes or no? And rather than sitting in judgment on people, because people were like, they're Coptic, they're not, they're not theologically accurate. I mean, people wanted to dissect those things. And at the end of the day, I said, you know what, man, they stood for Christ while you sit behind a computer screen. 
assessing their life and salvation. In the moment when it counted, the only moment we watched of their lives, they did not bow down. They didn't buckle. They were singing to our Savior. And I choose to rejoice in that fact, not debate were they saved or not. I take a fine-tooth chrome through their theological convictions. He says, I will joy in the God of my salvation. I will joy shouting with exultation and rejoice. I grew up in the assembly of God. My, Pente my Pentecostal pastor is something I'm proud of, man. I was told by a prof at Westminster to never be ashamed of my Pentecostal passion. That's like complete juxtaposition right there. And I'm like, well, I mean, this Presbyterian OPC brother told me, I guess I'm good. But I mention that because there will be times in service as an unregenerate teenager that my mother forced me to sit in the front row of church. I'm unregenerate. I'm used to church. I'm tired of it. And I hear people screaming and shouting at the top of their lungs when the music is going on. And I'm so inoculated to what is going on that sometimes I just get mad at my mother for screaming, glory, hallelujah. And I'm like, man, you're doing that for show. Like, I would think that. And I remember asking my mama, mama, man, why do you scream so much at church? And she said, I'll be honest with you. She said, I'm praising God for your salvation. Unregenerate 14, addicted to street life, and that's what my mama came back with. I'm praising God in advance for your salvation, mijo. That's why I'm shouting. I'm screaming because I believe my God is mighty to save you. And I think back to that, and I think, man, how, 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 how contrary is it to the movement of our Holy Spirit, God himself, that if we sit in judgment in a time of worship, that someone is shouting, we don't know what they're shouting for. We don't know what they've been through. We don't know the trial and the desert that God may have just replenished them with a fresh drink of strength to endure when they go back home after church is over. We don't know, but it's easy to sit like, they just doing that for show when we ain't even engaged with our Father. Often I give my worship to God, but I don't give Him my worries. I will confess that to you. But my God is worthy to receive both, not just my worship, but also my worries. This is why Paul says, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. There's a great connection between surrendering our worries to God via prayer so that we can then pray for the strength of others. And when we begin to intercede for others in my life, my worries don't really seem that big of a deal anymore. It's during those times of worship and surrender that God renews us by providing us with strength. And this is the closing aspect is in verse 19. Our God strengthens those who surrender. See, there's going to be a lot of things in this life that we're unsure of. Many places that God is going to call all of us to go that we've never traveled to and we've never been there and we would never imagine that God would call us there. There's going to be deaths of our loved ones, overdue bills that we can't pay, failed exams, I've had a few here at school, church issues and marital woes that we're just going to have to endure. And through it all, I challenge you to remember the verse 19. God, the Lord is my strength. He makes me feel like the deer. He makes me tread on my high places. Although once completely spiritual, spiritually broken, crumbling, 
Habakkuk now confesses, God has energized me. It's a spiritual response with physical implications that show the complete opposite posture of what we read just a few verses ago. His strengthening is not on the fact that, he's, that God is going to judge Babylon. His strengthening is on the fact that God is his source of strength. So the judgment coming to Judah, the judgment coming to Babylon, that's no longer in the picture. The only picture is God himself. Everything else has been removed so that, so that for us, Christ can have visibility that we can see in this text. In Romans chapter 8, 9 through 13, it's God the Holy Spirit who provides us with the strength to put to death the misdeeds of our flesh. In Ephesians 3, 16, Paul prays that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. I love that phrase, according to, because in the Greek it's powerful. It's the opposite of out of his riches, it's according to his riches. I remember one time I was at the Royals game, shout out to the Royals because they won, to God be the glory, 30 years. Anyway, <laughs> we were at the Royals game, playoff game last year, and our phones were dying. And so we ran to this charging station. This charging station was not set up to be a permanent situation. It was set up to be temporary, to give me just enough power so that I could take pictures, selfies, and all those great things, right? So there was a time limit, but not only was there a time limit, there was a limit on the power. It did not have full power like my outlet at home does. So there's a difference between charging my phone at a temporary station with limited power versus at home when I have, if I paid my bill, the accessibility to a flow of electricity that will take care of my electronic device. Limited versus unlimited. The text does not say, and Paul does not pray, that God would give us strength out of his riches. Out of his riches would show it's like that charging station. It's temporary, it's limited, and it doesn't have the boost that we need. And it's not to give you what you need. But the reality of according to his riches means to meet the need but have more where that came from. Just like that flow of electricity in the crib has more than that temporary charging station. Paul is like, I know how much power God has to strengthen the saints in the midst of crisis, in the midst of the mundane activities, in the midst of a time of calamity. So I'm not praying that God will be stingy with his strength in the inner man. I'm praying that God would be liberal with his strength in renewing the spirit of the saints that they would keep on going even when things are not all good. And it's the prayers of the saints that is so necessary for the body of Christ the prayers of us can be leveraged for the saints around the world and even those in our classrooms. Philippians 1.19, Paul says, For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. Paul had freedom from imprisonment in mind. It has been a conviction for my family and I regularly for the past couple of years to keep our brother, Pastor Saeed Abendini, in our prayers, that God would strengthen him and keep him, that even if God in his sovereignty will not let him be released from prison, which is our prayer, that he would strengthen Saeed, strengthen his children, just like we heard from the brother who has been deployed and his children, five and seven-year-olds, and when is daddy coming home? That broke my heart to hear that. I can't think of what my wife would endure knowing I was overseas, not knowing my location, not knowing what my assignment is for the military, yet trusting in the Savior while shepherding and caring for our children. It's the prayers of the body of Christ. That five-minute prayer before we sang worship infuses strength to that wife, infuses strength to those children, infuses strength to our brother fighting for our country. 
Don't withhold your prayers of supplication from the saints because in doing so, you will see your worries are worthless because you find your worth in your Savior. And finally, he says to the choir master with stringed instruments. It's important, not only because it's inspired, it's important because the tension and the struggle that we just witnessed in Habakkuk's life was written and recorded so that people and congregations throughout the world would celebrate God's glorious work. And we have Christ. We have the fulfillment of what it means to not be able to stand under the cup of wrath anymore. We have the fulfillment so that God the Holy Spirit indwells us and strengthens us. So we can read this and understand that we can be encouraged. Richard Patterson said, may Habakkuk's test of faith and the triumphant joy in his saving Lord be an inspiration and an example to all who must travel this life's road. I don't know where God is sending you, but I do know that you're called to go. And in your going, it is my prayer that you would never give up and retreat when it gets tough, when it gets hard, when it gets boring, when it's not as sexy as the next person's call, that you plow and you plant and you water and you humble yourself like I have to every day, understanding that increase only comes from our Father because there were billions that need to hear the gospel. And when you feel like you don't have the strength to stand and you feel like you're going to buckle, remember, believers can thrive wherever we go because our God is triumphant in the midst of our troubles. He is worthy to receive our worries and our worship, and he strengthens those who surrender. Let's pray. Father, as we have looked at your word, I pray, Holy Spirit, that in my preaching that you would have filled the gaps, that lack of clarity, terms and colloquiums that were used, Lord God, that don't make sense to people, that at the end of the day, supernaturally, you would transcend all of my imperfections and that you would allow this text to stick to the ribs of every soul who was heard, and may we assess our life and our faithfulness and obeying your loving command to go. And may you strengthen us with all the strength in our inner man according to your riches found in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you again for listening to this chapel message from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. If you are thinking about theological education on the undergraduate or graduate level, including doctoral studies, we hope that you consider us. If you also find these chapel messages encouraging and a blessing to your walk with Christ, we hope that you will consider financially supporting Southeastern. Our graduates are literally serving the kingdom across this globe, working to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost, dying world. Your gifts will help to train more, and they will serve as a worthwhile investment in God's kingdom. You can find more information about attending Southeastern or supporting us financially at www.sebts.com. We cover your prayers and trust that God will bless every good work you do for His glory. Thank you for joining us in our chapel services.